And welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. We had some great episodes here in An Organic Conversation in the past in which we talked about the overall landscape of green initiatives. Green in unusual places a couple years back and organic around the world were two of those episodes where we discussed how far the green movement and our eco-literacy has brought us thus far. Today, we are once again expanding on this topic as we are speaking with an expert about new ideas for sustainable sporting events. From alternatives to plastics and reduction of other waste to inviting all parts of the community, racing towards green is our focus in this hour. And we are delighted that you are joining us as we explore what communities and people can do to make our get-togethers much more inclusive while reducing our ecological footprint. We're your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sitarani Palmar. And speaking of the subject of far-reaching impact, we picked up an interesting topic that was featured in, I think, both Tree Hugger and Mother Nature Network about far-reaching impact, unfortunately, of a not-so-great kind. They have found that these polyethylene plastic beads that are used in body care exfoliants, so things like face exfoliant and, and body exfoliants, things that you would use in the shower and the bath, these plastic beads are so microscopic that they pass through every sewage treatment. Nothing can capture them, and they end up in our bodies of water. In fact, they conducted some tests in the Great Lakes where they found high concentration of these tiny microplastics, I think is what they're calling them. Um, and this is, a real, this is a real danger. Not only is it somewhat, I mean, it's, it's pollutive, but at the same time, it's dangerous for the, the wildlife that live in that water because they say that these plastic beads can actually absorb some of the toxins that are in the water. And then as they are ingested by the fish, that toxicity becomes a part of the fish. And then the people who consume the fish are consuming that toxicity. So this is this is a major issue that's coming out of a, a body care product that has a specific pollutant in it that cannot be siphoned out. What it, what, where is it in? What products? They're in body care exfoliants. So if you use like a face, a face wash that has little beads in it that help, they're like scrubbing beads that take the dead skin cells off and that kind of thing. But and people tiny, use them on their body. They're microscopic. They call them um, microplastics or microbeads. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. How do I look, by the way? I've been, I've been using <laughs> Oh, uh, you haven't. Uh, so, you know, the thing for me is, first of all, maybe they're trying to think of a new way to clean fish, right? You know, people this way, their fish are clean when they come out of the lake with these <laughs> microbeads. So, you know, it may not be such a bad thing. But, but actually, in, in all in all fairness, here's what here's what occurred for in, me. In when seriousness. I, yeah. When I read this story is Ugh. someone thought this up. Right. Someone thought this up and no one in the room asked. What about the consequences? The consequences. Yeah, which which brings us to full life cycle, right? If we as a nation would actually, for anything we do and anything we produce, consider the full life cycle, have a full life cycle analysis, what does it do to, to produce it? How is it shipped? Where does it go on the shelf? Where does the packaging go? And where does the product go once it's consumed or used? We would have a completely different landscape of products. This would never fly, obviously, if you know that you know millions of body care tubes 
would end up accumulating in the Great Lakes and pollute the water. The, we, we, we are creating it always, not thinking fully through. We, it kind of ends with the product, and that's not where the responsibility ends, obviously. So well, like you, were, like you just said, we created it, but we, you know, we allow it, right? Sure. We, we buy into it. We yeah. get, well, we don't know often, unfortunately. But we, right? don't, but we also don't choose to. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. I mean, I just, it's a very interesting thing, and I think it's a perfect, perfect way to start this show. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that some, because of these new studies that are showing the, the quantity of these microbeads that are in the water supply, they're, the, the people who've been conducting the, the research have been speaking with major personal brands like Unilever and Johnson & Johnson and The Body Shop and various companies that do produce these exfoliants, that do sell these exfoliants, who are making an agreement to phase it out, which is a positive step in the right direction mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, but it brings me actually to the, the question about why we even need to do this. I mean, I recognize that there's a desire to be able to use products that help to make you glow. They're, they're kind of responding to a, a natural desire for the market, but there are so many other ways that you can achieve the same effect without having to create a microplastic that can't be caught by the sewage yeah, treatment. Salt scrubs and sand scrubs and clay. And oh, I mean, really? You know, yeah. it's too bad we, oh, yeah. we, that you couldn't do a holistic bite on this. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Maybe in a minute. And it, but it's true. It goes further than, you know, micro beets that, that accumulate in the Great Lakes in, in, in exfoliant products. We have, you know, bleached tampons where the bleach is absorbed in the body. We have makeup and other cosmetics, lipsticks with heavy metals and chemicals. And it's just, um, I really think if we if we truly consider not just the toxicity of ingredients, but the full life cycle, um, yeah, and education, of course, helps with that. And you're right, Mark, it's not, we can't just blame the industry, it's what we have allowed to. That's why education in this show is so important. And this show is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. <laughs> Our topic today, among others, is racing towards green, new ideas for sustainable sporting events. We are talking about plastic cup reduction and bringing all parts of the community into the race towards green. That, with an expert, is coming up. But before we dive into any topic further, here, of course, is the follow-up on the beads <laughs> Uh, conversation. He is <laughs> our very own Sitarani Palomar and her holistic bite. Well, this topic that we started the show with about the microbeads and exfoliants has really prompted a discussion that I think is valuable in tapping into wisdom, natural internal wisdom and resourcefulness on how to create your own exfoliants out of products that you have in your kitchen. There are lots of natural things that can help to remove dead skin cells, get deeper into your pores to move out the oil and the dirt, and they can just help you glow without having to use a synthetic product. These are things like like sugar and salt and ground oats. I mean, there are a lot of oatmeal scrubs out there. You can make your own oatmeal scrub by grinding some oats. And oats are very soothing. I think if you think back to the days when you were a child and you had chicken pox and your mother recommended an oatmeal bath, this is a very soothing ingredient. There are also people who use coffee grounds to make their exfoliants because studies have shown that coffee is both anti-inflammatory, so it can reduce the redness and the puffiness, and also because because it's a stimulant, it may promote collagen production and also combat cellulite. So 
even baking soda can be used as an exfoliant. And these are this is a very, very fine item. So it's actually even safe to use on your face, whereas the other ones, the sugar, the salt scrubs, you may want to stick to other areas of your body where the skin isn't quite so thin and delicate. And you can do lots of things to create these. You can combine it with oil, like coconut oil or olive oil. You can use honey as one of the ingredients that binds these exfoliating ingredients together. Honey is an antioxidant and also an antimicrobial. And sometimes people use lemon juice, which has some clarifying properties to it. So it's really quite simple for you to create these at-home body scrubs and face scrubs that are natural. It will help you save on the tax of unhealthy products. So it, it helps your health. It also helps you save money and helps you save face. So that was this week's holistic bite. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. Um, so something occurs for me because I loved listening to this. Um, oat, when I ever used oats, like I'll put oats in a bath um, balm thing. And sometimes the water gets really silky, right? So it's on your skin. And so um, is there something to do about being slippery when you're using these? Or? Well, so I ha- these are body scrub recipes that personally I tend to use um, – on my face, oats I use on my face more than I would use all over my Mm -hmm. body. I think that that's a really good point about how to keep it from being too slippery. I would would recommend that you do the exfoliating at the end of your bath routine so you're not moving around so much that it could be slippery as opposed to doing it in the shower where you're standing and you might slip. So if you're using it all over your body and it's sitting in the bathtub with you, you could prevent slippage that way. And it brings up a really interesting point that I wanted to mention. Coffee grounds can clog your piping. This is something that that they say in general when you brew coffee, you don't want to dump your grounds down. So even when you do a bath, you want to put a a strainer Mm -hmm. to catch those grounds so that they don't get into your pipes. I I just want to encourage people because, Mark, of course, I remember our Natural Product Expo West um, experience a couple years back. It's a big trade show, lots of skincare companies, and they one skincare company uh, offered free... Um, uh, facials, facial scrubs for t- 10 minutes, 15 minutes um, there. And and we en- enjoyed that. And mm-hmm. I know it was, I think, one of your first ones ever. My first and, scrub. Yeah. And so whether you have somebody else do it on your face, do it for you, or you do it for, your, for yourself, it's such a beautiful, um, sensual and... Uh, it it's like it it's almost a wake up call because when you're done besides it's beautiful to do it but when you're done and you step outside you can actually have a different experience of the air flowing around your head it's really waking up your skin which is our largest organ to the fabric on your body and your your face um, waking up to the to the air that you walk through it's beautiful you're you know just a little bit more awake getting rid of all the dead uh, skin cells. So if you've never done a facial or a body scrub or haven't done it in a long time, uh, go to Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation and um, look up Sita's blog on uh, facials, facial scrubs. Wonderful. <laughs> um, racing towards green, new ideas for sustainable sporting events is our topic. Green is going everywhere including sporting events and um, amazing the work that is being done by our guest. 
that and more when we come back right after the break. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Racing towards green, new ideas for sustainable sporting events is the topic in this hour. And we're speaking with a very special guest, Keith Peters. He's the executive director of the Council for Responsible Sport. He's joining us today from Ojai, California. That's councilforresponsiblesport.org. Offering alternatives to sporting events and their ecological footprint and even community involvement. Keith, are you with us? Yes, I am. Great. Thanks for making the time. Wonderful to have you. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Keith, welcome to the show. So uh, right off the top, you know, we love this idea, as Sita had mentioned to you. But, you know, why develop a council for responsible sport? What exactly is the problem you're addressing with your organization? Well, first of all, I want to say that I didn't develop it, so I don't deserve the credit for it. I just Okay. I just run it. I just run the operation now, but, um, you know, back in, in uh, 2007, our founders, who were race directors of the Portland Freshwater Trust uh, Triathlon, set out um, to put on a sustainable triathlon, and one of the challenges that they faced was convincing triathletes that it was um, safe to swim in the Willamette River in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> uh, which... Um, so, you know, they, they, that was a problem that, that they faced that they wanted to overcome. And in doing that, then they decided to go ahead and do things like um, build the transition bicycle racks out of bamboo and, you know, do a number of other environmentally and socially responsible things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in more general sense, uh, why do we exist and what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, a couple things. Whether there are participant sporting events like marathons and triathlons or whether there are spectator sporting events like golf tournaments or, or professional you know, football or, or baseball games, um, those of us in the sports world have, have the advantage that so many people, not just in America but around the world, are passionate about their sports, again, whether it's participants um, or, or spectators. And so the National Resources Defense Council a few years ago identified the fact that something like 65 or 70 percent of people relate much more uh, to sports than they do and pay pay much more attention to sports than they do to environmental messages um, that come through news and things like that. So on the one hand, we kind of have a captive, eager audience um, that is receptive to um, progressive 
initiatives and, and messaging. And on the other hand, we actually have uh, an issue. I wouldn't call it a problem, but, you know, the things that we do, whether it's the games that we go to watch or um, the races that we participate in, um, all have an incremental impact uh, on the environment. And in many cases, they have an incremental impact, whether it's um, traffic getting to the stadium or road closures for for a marathon or, or a triathlon. They have an impact on their on their community. And not that they're necessarily uh, the worst things that could ever happen, but they are incremental and, and they do um, affect um, they do affect things. So, yes. uh, and actually, I love like, I love Keith that you are. Um, that you're using the venue and the the avenue of sports, and uh, when we when we designed the show, of course, we were thinking, you know, the the race events, um, you know, breast cancer walk, marathons, um, those those types of events. But of course, any sporting event, whether we drive in individual cars, maybe with a buddy, but thousands of cars to a stadium and watch something, uh, to you know what we consume during the event and before and after. Uh, then driving home, or as you said, as participants, I um, I have uh, run several marathons myself, and the amount of plastic bottles are always booked as it's a necessity. It's part of the sport and the the coming together as a community for the sake of the sport or the race or the personal challenge um, is is worthwhile enough to have that kind of ecological footprint, but it's wonderful to hear that there are alternatives. And we, of course, want to get into that um, as well. First, though, how are you evaluating your events? I know you have um, a whole set of of standards developed. Um, I've worked in organic certification. I know there's a 500-plus page law that's the National Organic Program that defines exactly what is allowed and what is prohibited and what is restricted. Um, or in organic conversation, we just became a B corporation, meaning we went through a similar evaluation process. I know you have developed such a, a, a package of standards that address both environmental and social aspect. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, we're actually uh, now working in our fourth version of the standards. The first was tested as a pilot in 2008 um, and then refined and became version two in 2009. Uh, we introduced version three in 2012, and as soon as we did that, we started working on, on version four, which is what we introduced in, in, in January. But it's a, it's a set of, um, the current version is a set of 64 um, different um, credits or standards that address that address five different uh, general categories of, of sustainability or environmental and social responsibility. Mm -hmm. The first one is kind of a, an umbrella of, of planning and communication, um, encouraging people to have written goals and objectives and things like that and choosing, um, you know, making choices in the planning process that, that, um, that makes sense and, and have less impact. For example, um, the Boston Marathon, which is a point-to-point -point course and has, has existed for well over 100 years, um, we're never going to convince them, and we don't want to try uh, to become a, a loop course so that they don't have to bus all those runners out to Hopkinton on race day and, and have that impact and, and have the, the impacts of a point-to-point -point course. But a new event, we would certainly encourage them to become um, – a loop course where they start and finish in the same place and don't have that same transportation need. So, so we really 
try to get people to kind of think about the planning and, and the communication that goes around it in terms of, of educating and engaging, uh, again, whether it's, in our case, primarily participants, but in some cases spectators as well. Then we have a section on procurement. You know, what do you buy, and how can you change your buying decisions um, or decide not to buy something um, to improve, um, you know, to lessen the impact of, of, of things like that? A lot of events have gone to uh, something that's called a virtual goodie bag, uh, where instead of uh, a plastic bag full of samples and paper coupons and things like that, um, instead you get an electronic um, goodie bag with the same kinds of coupons and, and the ability to, if you really want a sample, to, to correspond with the, with the sponsor or the that's, vendor and, and request something. That's so great. Um, um, then we, we have, you know, probably our, our primary section and kind of the most thing people would most expect us to address um, is the area of resource management, you know, waste diversion and water conservation and energy use and use of renewable energy and uh, you know, calculating and managing mm-hmm. uh, carbon footprint. Um, then we have a whole section on ac- access and equity. How inclusive is the event? How accessible is it to different, um, different, you know, segments of the population, whether they're, you know, underserved or underprivileged or, you know, disabled or, or aged or, or whatever. And then the last is a, is a community legacy piece where we feel it's important that people kind of consider and, and measure what their what their economic impact is on the community. What um, you know, what kinds of things can they do to leave behind and to to, to make a positive contribution? How, how do you call that last part? I didn't hear the header. Uh, community legacy. Oh, community legacy. Wonderful. Yeah, community legacy. I think it's so important that you're addressing this um, full cycle of any kind of event, not just the environmental impact, which seems like when you know when people talk about, I mean, this is the Council for Responsible Sport, and people think of it in, as a green initiative, but it's not just about environmental responsibility. It's about social responsibility as well. It's about the community aspect of it is so interwoven. It can't be pulled out. It's a necessary, they are necessary factors to become certified. Um, can you tell us more about what you're doing on those social factors and helping evaluate the community's participation? Sure. Well, in, in, in the community legacy and in the access and equity, um, you know, sections, we encourage people. And again, the way our, let me back up for just a second, the way our certification works, out of the 64 credits, if you earn 45% of them, um, you achieve certification. And if you earn 60% of them, you achieve silver certification. 75% is gold certification, and 90% is evergreen. So in theory, an event could become certified without, you know, doing much in the social um, in the social area at the basic level. But, you know, that that's very infrequent. So um, we, you know, to use an example, um, we encourage events, to kind of look at who's participating in their event. And it's not, again, if it's a, a running event, when we mean participating, we don't necessarily just mean the runners themselves, but the volunteers that they depend on. And in some cases, even, even you know, the, the spectators that, that line the course. We, we encourage them to look at all those groups and, and kind of analyze them and, and say, ask themselves, well, who's missing here? Who 
should be involved that isn't involved, or who would we like to have be involved that isn't involved? And they might come back and and say, you know, the most underrepresented group we've identified that we would like to work with are, you know, underserved high school kids who can't afford our entry fee. Sure. So, so important. They would, they would set up a, Such they important. Would set up a specific goal that would Include reach them. out to, to high school kids and maybe um, get a sponsor to underwrite their entry fees or, you know, work with them in some other way so that they can participate. Yeah, that's the beauty. Um, winning a sponsor, for example, often the first response to an initiative or an idea like this would be, well, it needs to be financed. And if you want to involve and include and reach out to a community that may not be able to pay $150 or $100 for a marathon registration um, well, it might be actually an economic uh, opportunity for the overall race to include that group and find a sponsor to underwrite it. So um, it's interesting that I think the first response would be this is, you know, it's hard to finance and you will lose money when actually, in fact, you might be able to make more money to make the overall event more sustainable economically. And I really like that you are addressing those three areas of sustainability, um, environmental, social, cultural, and economic all together. We're speaking with Keith Peters, the executive director of the Council for Responsible Sport in Portland, Oregon, who is joining us actually today um, out of Ojai, California. That's uh, councilforresponsiblesport.org. Um, if you want to learn more, and um, Keith, stay with us. We'll take a quick break, um, and uh, we'll be right more with the impact of your work, of what you have seen, some stories of amazing success. That and more when we come back. Racing Towards Green, new ideas for sustainable sporting events today here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Do you have a passion for healing through healthful organic food? Become an expert in nutrition, the prevention of illness, and the promotion of optimal health. The Bowman College Distance Learning Program is a convenient, self-paced program that prepares you for a successful career as a nutrition consultant in your own home, on your own time, in a way that's organic to you. Start on your path to holistic health today with the Bowman College Distance Learning Program. Find out more at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Working from home is awesome, except when it's not... If you're working from your couch or your coffee shop, chances are you're not your most productive. For thousands of entrepreneurs, co-working is the answer. Next Space is a co-working company with offices in L.A. and the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Find an innovative workspace, a built-in community, and great networking opportunities at Next Space. Visit nextspace.us for more information. Next Space, your best work happens here. And we are back to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we are racing today, racing towards green, new ideas for sustainable sporting events. With us in this hour is Keith Peters, Executive Director of the Council for Responsible Sport in Portland, Oregon, councilforresponsiblesport.org, who's joining us today out of Ojai, California. Um, Keith, you were talking about how you do it, the assessment of um, of sporting events of all kinds, looking at the environmental, social, cultural, and economic factors 
that are neither green or maybe prohibitive or exclusive for some people in the community and addressing all of it to make the overall event a great success on all levels. So, you know, Keith, I love the idea of an electronic goodie bag, by the way. I mean, I go to all these events, <laughs> and I actually uh, do leadership seminars myself, and I'm always like, why do people have to give out all this stuff that most people aren't going to use anyway? So I love that idea, which brings me to this question. Um, can you tell us, can you give us some examples of the positive impact of your work? Like how much waste have, have you seen eliminated at a major sporting event? You know, bottles, cups. What have, you know, what have you, see, what have you seen with the social interactions that you've created by allowing other people to participate? I, I would just love to hear some, a couple of stories about, you know, the, the success of your work. Okay, well, you know, first of all, it, it's, it's not the success of our work. It's the success of the work of the event organizers. <laughs> We're just there to recognize that work, to celebrate it, and, you know, to help in terms of, of coaching them or, or giving them resources and things like that. So, you know, all, all the credit is due uh, really to the, to the event organizers who've kind of become early adopters in this, in this movement and, and have... have um, have rolled up their sleeves and done good work. But, you know, just to give you an example of how how things work, um, <clears throat> there's an event, very much a community uh, grassroots event in Spokane, Washington, called the Lilac Bloomsday Run. And it's in eastern Washington, fairly, you know, not a heavily populated uh, corner of a state that's not heavily populated. And they have over 50,000 participants in what is a 12K or a seven-and-a-half-mile run. And it's in early May, so sometimes it can be a cool spring day or sometimes it could be a, you know, a hot early summer day. But, you know, depending on the day um, at the various uh, water stations or aid stations on at the start and the finish and along the course, um, you know, they might use as many as 500,000 cups to supply water or some kind of sports drink um, to to the participants. When they first got involved in working with us and, and exploring certification, all those cups, which probably weigh about a ton, uh, all those cups were going to the landfill. There wasn't uh, a, another option for them. And we worked with them and, and decided that actually the cups that they were using in many parts of the country um, were, in fact, compostable. They're, they're pretty, a pretty simple, wet wax. A cup. They're not branded compostable. They're, it's not something that somebody's paying a premium for um, that it says compostable on it, but in fact they were compostable. So we worked with them and their local, um, at that point in time, it was just a yard debris composter. That's all they had the permit to do. And we were exploring getting a special use uh, permit for a pilot study, and then all of a sudden they said, oh, we can compost this cup. And so, you know, since then, every year, Bloomsday has sent its approximate one ton of, of cups um, to be composted rather than to the landfill. Fantastic. That is so amazing. If you, this is one race, right? It's a large race. 50,000 people is considered um, one of the larger city races. But if you, if you, I, I don't know if there's a number, Keith, if, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, there must be hundreds, if not thousands of races just in the U.S. here alone and around the, the globe. I can only imagine that there must be tens of thousands of city races of that dimension. I know at this point, um, you know, within the last 20 years, 
racing and city racing and city sport events have become very, very popular, uh, much more than in the 80s. And now there's almost a major city race in every city in the United States, depending on the time. And often, mm -hmm. like a city of San Francisco, has one or multiple races at every given weekend. I mean, there's on Friday yeah. night is, you know, the one sports shoe race, and then there's the the race for women only, and then there's a cure for the walk for the cure, and I mean, it's there's there's something going on 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 three or four days every week of every weekend of of uh, throughout the year. The amount of plastic cups I can't even do the math right now, but we're talking tens of thousands of events with tens of thousands of participants, um, and you say fifty thousand, that's five hundred thousand cups. We're talking billions of cups. And that's just Absolutely. cups. You know, and it, it, you know, it depends a little bit. I mean, Bloomsday has lots of people, and it's, it's a reasonably short event. You know, it's you know, seven and a half miles. I mean, that's not short, but it's not a, a 5K. But it's not a marathon. Um, to use another example, uh, you're right. You know, there, there are thousands of running events in, in the United States every year with millions of participants. But uh, you know, a big city marathon like Chicago or New York, um, you know, they have, I think, both in like 40,000 participants around there, you know, and it's, it's obviously there are more water stops because the race is, is um, you know, three and a half times as long as, as the Bloomsday. So, you know, sure. they might use two or two and a half million cups uh, for an event like that. So, so the impacts, yeah, they can be, they can be pretty... And what I what um, I really love about your work is that every participant, if it's advertised enough, if it's displayed enough, if it's explained enough, will take that green, you know, educational, environmental sensitivity of the race day into their private lives. I think these are always opportunities that work on so many levels. Of course, it's wonderful to, you know, have a better use for two and a half million cups in just one race. But the the forty thousand participants in that marathon however aware or ready they are to take uh, responsibility, environmental and, and social responsibility into their lives from that race day. But it's such a platform for further education. And that brings us to um, our next question. It's the last question. We are almost out of time, but I do want to hear, what do you envision as the kind of general master outcome of greening sporting events um, in the nation or even worldwide? What is, what's your, what's, when would your mission be accomplished? Well, I don't know if it'll ever be mission accomplished, but you know our vision is, is a world um, where responsibly produced sports events are the norm. You know, and to kind of quantify that a little bit more, um, probably the the most listeners know about lead building, green building certification. Yes, most of your listeners probably know about that. Um, and our process is, you know, in some ways very similar. And I recall a few years ago when I first learned of lead. Um, there weren't a lot of lead buildings to choose from, whether you're looking for a residential or, or commercial real estate. But, you know, these days, there's lots and lots of lead certifi certified, you know, homes and, 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 and commercial buildings. And so what, what we hope for someday is that um, event participants will, will have the same kind of breadth of choice of responsible events um, to participate in that, that kind of the lead green building 
um, world is, is, has come up with so that, you know, you can actually make a choice on race day of, you know, of, you know, I want to do, I want to do this race or do I want to do this race? They're both about the same distance from my house and yeah. they're both about the same <laughs> distance. And this one's certified by the council. I'm going to do that one. That's great. That's, what, what, that's what is the, what is the seal that they would be earning? Certified green sporting event or what is your, um, what? uh, it's basically, it's, you know, Council for Responsible Sport, and then they, it says either certified, which, uh, again, means that that event has earned, achieved 45% of our credits or greater, or it's noted silver, which is 60% of our credits or greater, or gold, which is 75% of our credits or greater. Or evergreen. And then the ultimate, the ultimate would be evergreen, <laughs> and that, then, that would be 90% of the credits. Uh, on offer. Yes, wonderful. LEED certified buildings, B Corp certification for appropriate corporate behavior, fair trade, organic certification, and of course, Council for Responsible Sport certified Evergreen. Um, that's Keith Peters, the executive director of the Council for Responsible Sport out of Portland. That's councilforresponsiblesport.org. Uh, who joined us today in this hour from Ojai, California. Keith, wonderful work. Thank you for what you do. And um, I can't wait to raise a day. Um, it's coming up soon at an event that is actually certified by the Council for Responsible Sport. How wonderful. It will be full circle. <laughs> so thank you Thanks for joining so us today. It's really a pleasure thank to have you. you. Thanks, Bye-bye now. Keith. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. We are here at An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. How beautiful is that? <laughs> you know, this story actually came so because um, I was speaking with a gentleman in Houston who worked with Keith to help make the Houston Marathon, I believe it was the Houston Marathon, a certified Council for Responsible Sport event. And so, you know, I was telling him about an organic conversation and he said, you have got to get this gentleman on the phone because it's an opportunity to see just how far reaching the the green responsibility mentality can go, you know. Helga said at the beginning of the episode talking about green and unusual places. Well, I wrote down a quote that you said, Helga, at the you know pre-production planning for this show when you said, there is no area where green and responsibility should stop. And I just think that this is a beautiful illustration of that concept in practice. Yeah, wonderful. And his love for his work is so tangible for me. And, you know, having done many, many city races myself, I really know that that's the last thing you think about. And he thought about it or his organization is thinking about it every mile that you are running and uh, or whatever the sporting event may be about. And it's just makes me so happy. It, it's a very hopeful organization. Again, big shout out Council for Responsible Sport. Dot org. Check it out for more information. Coming up is Responsible Eating. Um, of course, we're talking produce. Always. Uh, always. What's in <laughs> season with Mark Mulcahy. <laughs> but um, before we go into that, uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll right back with more. Stay tuned. Produce is ever-changing. Seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. 
Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Racing towards green, new ideas for sustainable sporting events, our topic in this hour. And now it's racing towards broccoli. No. Could be. We will find out. Here is our very own Mark Mulcahy and what's in season. Well, uh, welcome to What's in Season, and of course, on the line, we have Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco Produce Market from Earl's Organic Produce in San Francisco, joining us. Earl, I've got a question for you. So, oh. it's Sunday <laughs> afternoon. I go into the store, and I'm picking up a few things, and I said, ah, I'm going to be doing a cleanse this week, and later in the week, I know I'm going to want some apples. So, I go over, and I start to look at apples, and I go, oh, what? Oh, oh they're not organic. And then I look at the next one, and I said, it's not organic. And then I look at the next one, and it's not organic. And I was like, something's odd here. So I went and asked who I was work, who was working there. I said, oh, I can't find your organic apples. They're usually right here. And he says, oh, we don't have any. They're not available right now. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, wait a second. <laughs> Where well, am I? Yeah, wait, wait a second. <laughs> um, and so I said, okay, that's Okay, sure, and and I said I'm going to call Earl because <laughs> I complain. I know, I know, I know differently than this, but you know, I haven't been in a produce market in a in a few days. Maybe there's something that's occurred. So I got on the phone with you, and yeah. now my question to you is, what the heck's going on in the apple market? Yeah, uh, well, it's been a very interesting year, and it's been going on probably uh, for the last couple of weeks, maybe up to a month. Uh, some retailers um, are making choices. Some of it, um, I think, strategic. Some of it is very practical, and some is the way it is. And that is, the uh, the apple crop was was a little was a little lighter this year. California was quite a bit smaller. The Northwest, where most of the United States apples come from, was pretty was flat or a little down. Um, but mo- but part of that was uh, kind of a skewed because. Uh, what what good production there was was new apples like Pink Ladies and Honeycrisp, and that was, there's not a lot of those apples anyway. So really, if you look at the standard, it was it was down a little more than a bit. Couple that with continuing strong demand that we all have. Um, those two factors kind of create this interesting situation that all of a sudden, and also remember the time of year, all apples were picked in the fall. They're all coming out of storage. So there's that natural timing of a seasonal lull uh, in, in, in not production, but actually releasing of the apples. What I mean by that is apples are stored in big units, big refrigerated units, and they, and they only release them, open up these units every month or so, or, or it could be every couple of weeks. So there's that natural lag there because they won't up, open up another room until those apples are done. So, so uh, you, you, you don't store apples, right? As a wholesaler, you buy them, you buy the best organic apples available out of storage if it's not the season. You, you don't store apples yourself. 
Well, we, we, we do what we would, what one would consider fresh storage, where it, when we see a situation like this where there's going to be a release, there's going to be a glut, then a shortage, we buy up as many as we can. Uh-huh. We have the facility to do that, but that still doesn't amount to more than a couple weeks of supply. Right, right. And, um, and so, Earl, weren't you also saying that when they release a room, do you have yeah. any idea how many apples are in a room? I don't. I just yeah. know that I hear that all the time. It's like, oh, well, they opened up a room and now there's apples. <laughs> Yeah. Like, so it was like the treasure of King Tut or something on, on yeah. apples. Or and something? what is a room, right? It's not a four by four, obviously. Yeah, I know. It's very deceiving. And there are different storage rooms, different sizes. But in talking to a couple guys, they they say they can there can be as many as twenty truckloads out of a room, and every truck has a thousand cases. Okay. Yeah. That, so that it's changes the definition of I'm renting out a room yeah, here. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Twenty but, truckloads. And, wow. But understand that is that is serving the entire United States and other Canada sure. and, and of course Europe and, and Japan. This so it isn't very much. So um, that situation. So what I've what I've heard retailers doing. If Mark, you and I as ex retailers know that you go down and buy buy some apples. The next time you go down, you can't get any. You have a space in your uh, in your uh, in your cooler display that now you got to do something with, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, it, it's interesting, although we have spoken with you about the art of storage, right? Whether it's um, in 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 fresh storage with you as a nursery bringing in produce and then um, bringing it to the to the outlets, or as a wholesaler, or really the largest storage units, 20 truckloads in a quote-unquote room. I know the art has been perfected, and maybe it's just this year, or maybe it was just that purchase, but I did buy a Pink Lady uh, a week ago, and this is only March, mm-hmm. and it wasn't good. It was it was yeah. not stored right already. You c- could tell yeah. that there was yeah. an equality that you would expect in May or June when it's basically no longer apple season or new apples from or so are coming in already. Yeah, what's going? In a couple weeks. Yeah, what what's going on with that? Why? Well, one thing is when 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 apples are put in this cold storage, it's an artificial uh, uh, atmosphere. Atmosphere, there is suspended animation. So when mm-hmm. they're taken out, um, they start to break down quicker if they're not uh, in a secure cold environment. So uh, so that could very easily, the cold chain could have been broken, meaning that it was on display in a, in a too warm an environment. And it's like taking an apple home, rather than refrigerating it, you're putting it on your uh, kitchen counter, and in two days, that's going to start yielding the pressure, getting a little soft. But if you left it in your refrigerator and then you went in two days later, it's still going to be crispy as heck. Well, mm-hmm. and that's a great point, Earl, because the store that I, was, that I started the show, this, this segment with, doesn't refrigerate any of their apples. They probably yeah. think they move them fast enough. So, Helga, if you got it at a store that's not refrigerating their apples, sure, it's five ab- days later. Absolutely, if it's a few couple days later, even a couple, as Earl mentioned, it yeah. is going to lose its integrity and it's not going to give you the same experience. Yeah, and there's no Academy Awards for suspended animation in the <laughs> produce department, so you don't have any. You know, you could ver- can verify it. So again, it, there's not. No, there's not. Oh. Mark, well, you should invent that. that. Retired, yeah. Yeah. So again, you guys say you know taste your produce. I was disappointed. Ah. Apples are not cheap right now because it's they're not as readily available. Mm-hmm. And buying a couple of pink ladies and both of them really pretty disappointing already. Kind of you know those soft spots in the middle. Um, it wasn't just wasn't right. That's that's three dollars well, spent right there. Too yeah. Much. yeah. You know, there's other dynamics involved. I mean, there's been an interesting cycle in organic apples. I think ten years ago, everybody was ramping up with apples. 
um, more acreage was being planted, uh, trees were being grafted, and uh, as they came in production around uh, 07, 08, 09, uh, there then was a, a kind of return to less acreage. People were, uh, or, so or, uh, conventional growers that were now going organic transitioning, there is more expense to growing an acre, about $3,000 more conventionally, mm-hmm. organically than conventionally. Uh, as more uh, product came out to the public, more supply, equal demand, prices went down. They weren't getting the returns. They, uh, some, some orchards returned to being conventional because they didn't want to go through uh, the different uh, practices that they were just becoming familiar with. And so supply then, as, as um, demand continued to grow, supply sure. started to dwindle. Very interesting cycle. And so now we're, I think we're at a, a kind of a state, uh, a place of returning to higher production. Though there are some issues with fire blight up in the Northwest that it has to be dealt with. And I think, Earl, that's going to be, have to be a whole nother show, the show I on fire so. blight. Yeah. But, Earl, I just want to say, <laughs> you, you demand. And um, <laughs> and, yes. uh, and and thank you so much. At least we have a little bit better idea when we go into the market now what's going on with the apples. And uh, they're going to be high priced for the rest. The yeah. domestic apples are going to be high priced for the rest of the season. You may not be able to get your favorites and definitely taste them before you buy them. And the, the Academy Awards for Suspended Animation clearly go to Earl. This year for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks well, a lot, thank Earl. You, thank you, Earl. Earl. Always great talking to you. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Talk to you later. Take care. <laughs> he makes all of these topics so interesting and rich. Like you both bring a whole new experience of what it is to buy fresh food. And applicable. Like I always thought, you know, yes, produce, what is in season and how you store it at home. But wow, it's it's actually my daily experience. I, I just bought two pink ladies and they weren't good. Now I know why. It's fascinating to me. It's not like, okay, there was one bad bad um, shipment and you know whatever it, it is so much bigger the conversation is so much bigger it's really almost always going on in the entire country or you know in, in the region it is, it's amazing literally daily. and i know that many small uh, small scale producers uh, especially in in california oregon like the the heirloom varieties um, w- went out of business in the last 20 years and it seems like th- this is one of the results so if we if we can you know, keep those smaller producers alive and support them, they will help buffer that regional pressure um, for apples if, if a national supply is, is low. Or it's just, again, it brings me to the vitality of small food systems. And I don't think I would have had a, a poor apple experience if we had more small growers. So I, I was just great. in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania last week, and they had York apples, locally grown, organic, and... They are just keeping them in their kind of own cold cold storage, and they were fantastic. Yeah, there's even an apple that gets better in storage. I'm not sure if it's a Hauer Pippen, but um, uh, yeah, I, I know there are a couple of German varieties that were brought to the United States that actually get sweeter and better the longer you store them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, coming again down to six or seven varieties is just not the answer. Wow, packed hour. Thank you, Mark, for what's in season. Mm-hmm. Thank uh, you, Mark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah, and we love to share all of these tips in a written form for our audience who wants to recap on some of the things that we talked about in this hour, whether they're blogs about how to make your own body and face scrub from the holistic bite or recaps on how to, you know, encourage a local sporting event to get their 
certification as a responsible sport or how to select your apples for a better price and better flavor. You can find all of that and more on our website at anorganicconversation.com. Also, lots of tips on our Facebook page. It's a great place for you to connect with other people in the organic sustainable community. We're just trying to foster more human connection and dialogue and 60,000 strong now. So thank you all so much. Yeah, and if you know the show through the airwaves, um, check it out if you've never visited. Um, we, we created a multimedia platform for you that includes now video and, of course, an archive of every episode that we've ever done. There's a search field where you can look up topics from hemp to diving. Uh, we, we really covered a lot of topics over the last five years. It's all there. Our blogs, um, brand new site that we launched in November, um, anorganicconversation.com, and as Sita just said, facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. And also, if you want to learn more about produce, a shout out for Earl's Organic Produce. That's facebook.com forward slash Earl's Organic Produce. If you look that up, you'll find it. And they have great seasonal weekly tips of what's of what's in season. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. That's an organic conversation. We're out of time, but wonderful to do the show with you guys. It I'm Helga Helberg. <laughs> it was wonderful to do the show with you. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And wonderful to do the show with and for all of you listening. We will see you here next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, man.